The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're finally at the Reformation. This is my favorite piece of church history. And I, it was all I could do to get it down to the 74 pages that I just passed out to you. But we should be able to get through it with no trouble at all. Um, no, really, we're going to have a great time. And uh, I, I'm excited um, to look at this. I, I think we're still living out the effects of the Reformation now. I think about Luther and about his approach to Scripture all, all the time. As a matter of fact, he's my paradigm and my example for ministry in many ways, uh, as we're going to see. But uh, in, in, in some respects, I put all of my eggs into the same basket that Luther did. That is the simple preaching and teaching of the Word of God. It has incredible power to transform not just one church, but a whole continent or a whole world. If you just simply do it year after year after year um, and explain the Word, it just transforms everything. But Luther is my example in that. What we're going to do is look at tonight... Um, just one aspect of the Reformation, um, or one part of it. We're going to look at the, the uh, what God did through Martin Luther and through Ulrich Zwingli, and we're also going to talk about the Anabaptists. Next week, we're going to, or next time, two weeks from now, we're going to talk about um, uh, Calvin and the English Reformation and that whole side, uh, some of the uh, uh, aspects of, of that Reformation, and I'll enjoy doing that as well. Now, the place we begin now uh, is the end of the 15th century, and we're looking at the church uh, as ripe for Reformation. The 15th century Roman Catholic Church uh, had fallen afoul in many respects. If you look at 1 Timothy 4.16, which is printed there, Paul uh, commands Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's a very important verse for a minister, isn't it? I mean, that pretty much covers it. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. It also kind of sums up what was happening wrong with the Catholic Church. There was something wrong with the life of the church and there was something wrong with the doctrine of the church. So that pretty much sums it up. They had serious problems in terms of their life and they had serious problems in terms of their doctrine. They're corrupt in life and corrupt in doctrine. Now, what do I mean when I say that the church was corrupt in life? Well, there were excesses. There were problems. Remember we talked about two weeks ago, we talked about Christendom. Christendom. Now, the word Christendom is like a kingdom of Christianity. It's a blending together of the state and the church. It's kind of a, a strong fusion together of the power of the state, princes, kings, emperors, and all that, with prelates, namely priests, popes, cardinals, the whole thing mixed together in a kind of an ironclad society, Christendom. Well, the problem is that that led to... Um, Corruption. For example, if you wanted to become a bishop, you had to be a wealthy person. You had to pay people off. You had to buy yourself into that kind of a post. It wasn't because you were a spiritual man necessarily. You might not even believe in Jesus Christ. Just as long as you had the right people and the right connections, you could become an archbishop or a bishop. So that was a corruption. There was also all kinds of problems in that monks and priests were supposed to be celibate. They were supposed to have no wife. They were not married. Um, well, why was this a problem? Well, for some really holy people, it wasn't a problem. Those with the gift of singleness, there was no problem. But for those that were just normal, everyday people, some of them, frankly, not really Christian, there was sexual immorality, all kinds of problems with that. 
uh, and many children were born to priests um, out of wedlock, and they would be raised in orphanages. We're going to talk in a minute about Erasmus. Erasmus was the son of a priest. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that was going on. There was some corruption. There was also political intrigue. There's always some kind of connections, you know, paying off this prince or that prince so that you could get your man in the right position as a cardinal or something like that. There was corruption. Uh, the church was also corrupt in doctrine. Sacramentalism, the idea that, uh, that sacraments were the way you got saved. If you received the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and did things the right way, whether you understood it or not, you were going, you were on the track of salvation. They had the doctrine of purgatory. Who knows what purgatory is? What's purgatory? That's right. After you're dead, you go to a kind of a holding place, uh, and unless you're a special person, a saint, so to speak, in which you go right on into heaven, very few people are like that, you go instead to purgatory, and you're there for a long time, and people on earth, if they remember you, can help get you out of purgatory by praying and by giving money to the church. All right? The whole thing is false. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. But this is part of their doctrine. Uh, there was also the idea of papal authority, that the Pope was the absolute authority in ecclesiastical matters and in state matters too in some respects. Papal authority. And then this idea of justification by works. If you wanted to get right with God, if you wanted to go to heaven, you had to do the right things. You had to do good works in a certain way. So that was the corruption. Now, there are some reformers, many reformers, but Martin Luther was different. And he said how he was different. He said, others attack the false life of the church. I attack the false doctrine. And, and we see in the end, if the doctrine is right, the life follows. You see? But if you try to attack the life without dealing with the doctrines, it's really like cutting off bad fruit from a bad tree. The tree's still bad. And you just keep pulling off the fruit, but the tree's still bad. And every generation, more bad fruit came. Luther said you have to make the tree good or the fruit's going to keep being bad. Now, what were some of these attempts at reform? Well, first there was this man, Girolamo Savaranola. He was an Italian reformer. Uh, he died right before the 15th century. He was a bold preacher of righteousness. He exposed sin clearly. Lots of people came to hear him preach. Very popular. Uh, he became a political leader of Florence. Again, no separation of church and state. So he was the leader of the city of Florence. And so Florence became a little place of reform. He began to teach against the Pope. He said the Pope was wrong about things. Well, in 1498, you don't do that. Okay? What happens to you if you begin to teach against the Pope in Florence, Italy, 1498? They're going to kill you. And that's what they did. They hung him and uh, exposed his body. His body was burned. And that's what happened to Savarinola. Now, the reason I'm telling you about him is that that's 1498. When did Luther do his Reformation? 1517. That's just 20, 19 years later. I, I want you to understand the incredible courage of Martin Luther. This was not ancient history. But Savarinola had been killed just 19 years before Luther's Reformation. And then there was this man, Erasmus. Erasmus was born in 1466, died in 1586. He was kind of a reformer, but not a true reformer. He went after the life of the church and some of the excesses of the church. He criticized immorality. 
uh, and corruption of the church. And he wrote in a very interesting style. He was a humanist. Now realize what's going on. We'll talk about this in a minute, but we've got the Renaissance. Okay, After the dark ages in which people did not read very much, they didn't study, uh, it's just gross ignorance, except in the monasteries for the most part. There was a new birth of learning. Universities started. People were studying things. And Erasmus was a big part of that, kind of a flowering of that. Erasmus made some very important contributions. Probably of all the things Erasmus did, one of the most important things he did, and here's a picture of him, Erasmus. They didn't have cameras back then, certainly not digital cameras with the Internet. Take a picture and see what he looks like. But they had paintings, and there he is, the Dutch humanist, the scholar, and he was always writing, writing, writing all the time. His most important contribution was his Greek New Testament. Now realize what happens. This is very interesting. Remember how the Roman Empire split into two parts? There was the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. The Western Empire was centered in what city? Rome. And Rome fell around the year 420 or so, 415. It fell to the barbarians. But the East didn't fall until the mid-15th century, the 1400s. Now, when the East fell, what city was the East centered on? Constantinople. When Constantinople fell, they fell to the Turks. Now, the Turks were Muslim people, and they started sweeping up toward Europe. It sent Europe into a panic. But it also sent many Greek scholars west, and they brought with them Greek writings, Plato and Aristotle and other things. But what other book was written in Greek? The New Testament. Now, in the West, what was their Bible? What did they use for a Bible? It was in Latin, the Vulgate, translated by Jerome. Now, why is this important? Well, a translation is still a translation. Jesus, for example, in Matthew 4.17 said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The Greek word for repent Metanoete means change your mind. Think new thoughts about things. Change the way you think. But Jerome translated the Latin, penitum agate, do penance, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Does that make a difference? Oh, you wouldn't believe how important that is. Because in the Catholic system, it meant you had to go out and do good things, go out and do good works, give money or help the poor. And if you did that, your sins would be forgiven. Well, all of a sudden, all these Greek scholars are bringing Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Erasmus started to collect them, and he put them together in a New Testament. So we have a Greek New Testament, and he published it. And so much reformation came from his work. Zwingli read the Greek New Testament and got all his ideas from that. Just clarity came when he understood that. Luther translated from the Greek into the German, not from the Latin, but from the original Greek. And Erasmus was the one who did that. Now, Erasmus was a tricky guy. Very tricky. Very funny, I think. He's one of the people I've ever met in church history. He wrote a lot of things. One of the things he wrote was the colloquies. And all they were were just little skits. You just read back and forth. 
It was like little lines. And he would use the things that were said to attack certain things in the church. But he was safe. You see how? This is how it works. I didn't say it. Just characters in the skit said it. You see? He's slick. He's like a snake, really. And so they would bring things up, but it's very funny. Um, the problem was he didn't realize how much the church needed reformation in doctrine. He was always working on certain aspects of the life. One of the things he talks about in his colloquies is uh, uh, how people would pray to the saints and not to God. And this was a problem. And the way he brings this out is by do- having a colloquy of, the, of a shipwreck. And so it's just lines. It's like lines in a play. You know, he's got these two guys, Antony and Adolf. And Antony is the friend. Adolf is the guy who was in the shipwreck. And so they're talking back and forth about this shipwreck. The ship is about to sink. And what did the people do who were on the ship? And how did they deal with it? Um, and this is what Adolf says. Some did nothing but get sick. Many made vows. There was an Englishman who promised heaps of gold to the Virgin of Walsingham if he reached the shore alive. Some promised many things to the wood of the cross at such and such a place. Others, again, to that and some other place. What is he talking about? Relics. Little pieces of the cross that were different. So they're making promises to a piece of wood. The same with respect to the Virgin Mary who reigns in many places and they think the vow worthless unless you specify the place. It's the Virgin Mary of such and such a town that you would make your pledge to. Antony says, ridiculous, as if the saints don't dwell in heaven. Uh, and then he asked, did anyone remember Christopher? Christopher is the, God, uh, the, the patron saint of lost causes. All right, so they're about to drown. Christopher you'd go to. I couldn't help laughing as I remember to, as I listened to one chap who in a loud voice, for fear he wouldn't be heard, promised a wax candle as big as himself to Christopher in the tallest church in Paris, a mountain rather than a statue. While he was proclaiming this at the top of his lungs, insisting on it again and again, an acquaintance who chanced to be standing by him nudged him with his elbow and cautioned, be careful what you promise. Even if you sold all your goods at auction, you wouldn't be able to pay for it. Then the other, lowering his voice so Christopher couldn't overhear him, of course said, shut up, you fool. Do you think I'm serious? As soon as I touch land, I'm not going to give him a tallow candle. So, well, This is the kind of writing he did. But what is he doing? He's dealing with a, an excess, a problem of praying to the saints. And finally, there's this debate between a, a priest and a monk. They're the last two to leave the ship. And each one wants to be the last one, but finally they jump off together. And as he's jumping, as they're jumping, they're calling on saints. Again, which saints did he invoke, the, the monk? He invoked Dominic, Thomas, Vincent, and I don't know which Peter it was that he invoked, maybe the Peter of Rome. But first and foremost, he placed his trust in Catherine of Siena, who was a mystic from the Middle Ages. And then I have this one highlighted right here. You see this little asterisk? Christ didn't come to mind. Isn't that powerful? Right in the middle. Never thought of Jesus. Never thought to pray to Christ. And that's the whole point he's making here. In the midst of all these saints, Christ never came to mind. That's how he wrote. The problem with Erasmus is he did not understand how much the tree needed to change, how rotten the tree was. And he was so slick that you could never quite get hold of where he was at. He was afraid, frankly. He was afraid to die. And people did die if you began to criticize things. But Jesus said, if you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for me, you'll find it.
Luther was not afraid to die. And we're going to see the difference between the two. Luther said about him, Erasmus is as slippery as an eel. Only Christ can catch him. Uh, and that was, I think, well said about Erasmus. So Europe is ready for reformation. The political landscape is of rising nationalism. Germans started feeling like Germans, not just members of the Holy Roman Empire. Okay? Uh, Worldview. What, what happened in 1492? Sail the ocean blue. Does that make a difference? Yeah, it affects the way you look at your world. The world is opening up. Also, it brought a great deal of gold to Spain and that affected some things too. But the world is opening up. And by the way, why did, why did Columbus sail? Uh, yeah, but why didn't they go out on the, the regular way? Why didn't they go around the Cape of Good Hope, etc.? It's because of the Turkish raiders. It's because of the Islamic naval force. They wanted to get that way, but they kept getting attacked by pirates. So they wanted another way that they could get to India, and so he sailed the opposite direction. But it was, again, because of Islam. It's amazing how the whole thing fits together. We have the Greek New Testament because of Islam, and we have Columbus sailing that direction because of it as well. You know, the funny thing about that is that it was mostly the peasants who, who thought that the world was flat. Most scholars knew that it was round. Um, but I think there, was, there were some clerics and some folks in universities that thought it was flat. But... I mean, Columbus knew. He used to sit there on the on the shore and just watch the way the currents work, and uh, and he knew. And and then you've got the Renaissance, as I talked about, and then you've got an amazing tool for Reformation. And it's talked about here. This is a book called The Life Millennium: The Last Thousand Years of History, and they rank events and inventions and things in terms of their order of importance. Number three, the third most important event. I think it's number three. Yeah, number two is Columbus's voyage, which we just talked about. Number three, Luther Knox. Okay? What do you think's number one? Gutenberg prints the Bible. Now, why is that the most important thing that's happened in the last thousand years? Well, I don't know that it is or it isn't. I don't know how you could ever decide. But it's very important for the Reformation. And the reason is, before the printing press, before the printing press, everything had to be written by hand. So if Luther puts up his 95 theses and everything had to be copied by hand, it just stays right where he is. But if you can print it and send it off like this, everybody's reading the 95 theses. Everybody. And it, it makes a kind of nationwide or even Europe-wide reformation possible. Gutenberg in 1455. Now, he did not invent movable type. Some people think he did. That was invented in the Orient, in China, in Korea. The problem, though, in China and Korea is they have 10,000 characters. It doesn't lend very well to movable type because you have to go through and find each one and put it in place. But we have 26 letters. It's very good for movable type. And so it would take one day, perhaps, to typeset a page of the Bible and then print. you could print as many as you wanted, however many you wanted. So it wasn't just Bibles that were being printed. People's writings, their theology, letters were being printed. Debates back and forth were being printed and people were reading them and they were interested. So we're all set for the Reformation. Now we need, we need a reformer. And the reformer steps forward and that's Martin Luther. There are other reformers, but Luther's the one we're going to find. Now, Luther came on a spiritual journey. Luther really was a Middle Ages man. 
He was a, middle, a medieval Catholic at the beginning. He was trying to find salvation for his soul. He was afraid of going to hell. And it's a good thing to be afraid of going to hell. Jesus said we should be afraid of, of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of the one who can kill you physically and then after that can do nothing to you. I'll tell you who to be afraid of. Be afraid of God who can throw you to hell. And Luther was. And he was terrified of going to hell. And so uh, it happened one day. He was on his way. He was trying to become a lawyer. His father, very strong person in his life, German father, wanted him to become a lawyer. Why did the German father want his son to become a lawyer? Yeah, to get him rich so that he'd take care of him in his old age. If you have a son, take care of you in your old age. Well, all of a sudden, Luther is on his way home on spring break. We go down to Daytona Beach on spring break. Luther went home. And so he's on his way home. And in the middle of his trip home, suddenly there's a vicious uh, thunder and lightning storm. I mean, horrendous. And he's in the middle of an open field. And he falls on his face in the mud and he's screaming to St. Anne, not to God. Okay, you don't go straight to God. Realize the medieval setup, okay? Medieval setup is you don't go straight to the king. You go to somebody you might know who could bring you to somebody who they might know who might bring you to somebody that they might know who might know the king. I mean, you're 20 steps removed from the king. So neither do you go straight to God. Remember we talked about this two weeks ago. Who did people go to instead? They went to Mary because they didn't go to Jesus because Jesus was judge of the world. He's the scariest of all. So we go to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Well, Mary got to be a little imposing. So who's St. Anne? Mary's mother. Uh, you see how it works? It's always one step removed. That's Catholicism. You're just never close to God. You're always step, you know, removed. So he's on his face and he calls out, help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. So that's the barter system in Catholicism. You know that I will trade. If you get me out of this thunder and lightning storm, I'll become a monk. And now we're going to look at a video in a minute. Uh, Roland Bainton, who wrote this book, Here I Stand, probably the best biography of Luther. Here I Stand. Great, excellent, excellent work. Well worth reading. He does a video, really old man at this point, professor of church history at Yale. He's very funny. He said, uh, Luther fell on his face and cries out, Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. And then he smiled and said, She did? And he did. <laughs> so basically, she got him out of the storm and he went and became a monk. It's exactly what happened. Well, his father was not too pleased about it, obviously, and that comes in the story later on. But uh, he attempts at this point to begin to try to save his soul through monkery, through being a good monk. And we're going to watch um, that whole attempt here. Even after becoming a monk, Luther's fear of God's harsh judgment would not be still. Saw God as a harsh judge with whom it seemed he could never find peace. With increasing desperation, Luther threw himself into even greater bouts of self sacrifice. In his loneliness, he struggled, and the same question continued to plague Luther. Could he ever do enough to escape God's angry judgment? Would he ever be saved? In all his torment, Luther turned to his confessor and superior, Johann Stauffer. Stauffer said to Luther, look here, young man, you're taking this too hard. All you have to do is to love God. 
loved God, said to him that I hate him. And that was blasphemy. And Talbot said, I don't understand. In Germany, nicht. And Luther said, he's an experienced confessor and he doesn't understand me. Am I the only one in all the world who has been so plagued? Dolphin sent Luther to the university at Wittenberg, hoping to distract him from the despair he suffered. Now, all of Luther's energies were to be directed to becoming a teacher, a teacher of philosophy and the Bible. Was Luther being led in yet another direction? Dominating the skyline in Wittenberg was the castle of Duke Frederick the Wise, a man who would play an important role in Luther's life. Frederick was a devout churchman. However, a growing new spirit of nationalism in Germany caused Frederick to question the dominance of Rome and particularly the huge amounts of money being collected in Germany and sent to the Pope in Italy. Frederick had a dream. He wanted to make his castle church a center of worship to rival that of Rome. And to attract the people to his church, Frederick invested in an immense display of sacred relics. Then to promote his church, he printed this very catalog. It pictures various relics. One container was said to hold 13 fragments of creature. Frederick collected thousands of other treasures too. The people who viewed these relics and, of course, made a contribution to his castle church were assured they could escape as much as two million years in purgatory. Of course, Luther could only say, who knows whether this is true. Luther began his career as a teacher by lectures on the Psalms. When he came to the 22nd, he encountered the verse, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Quoted by Christ on the cross. Luther was astounded. Christ forsaken. That's exactly the way I have felt, and I thought I was the only one in all the history of the world. But why? I'm weak. I'm sinful. He was not weak. He was not sinful. How then could it be? It could only be because he so identified himself with our sinful humanity as for the moment to feel himself on our side, even as over against God. What a different picture this is of Christ. He who was seen as the judge upon the rainbow, condemning, now has become the derelict upon the cross, redeeming. For Luther, the thought was well expressed by St. Paul in the Epistle to the Romans, that we are not right with God by anything we can do, but only by our acceptance, our belief, our commitment to God's holy, unmerited grace. And Luther said he felt, through this insight, 
as if the very gates of paradise were open. That's a great film, and I wish we had time to see the whole thing. But Luther was led to a confidence that he was going to heaven and not hell by reading the Bible and studying it. That's all. You know, it's funny. Nowadays, we're talking about how our culture is moving away from being a word-based culture to being an image-based culture because of MTV or other types of things. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We're still going to be explaining Christ's words and God's word until he returns because this is the way he's given for salvation. And Luther found salvation in the words of the Bible. Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason was that Jesus was receiving the wrath of God on the cross in our place. And then in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, in verse 16 it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. That's faith. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, in the Latin, justitia, the justice of God, is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And this was the insight. He said, now, at first he thought the justice of God in the gospel was the justice by which God showed himself just to punish sin. He's a holy God and he's going to show himself just. But that doesn't fit the context, does it? The context says the gospel is the way of salvation. So there's got to be some justice or righteousness in the gospel that gets us saved, not that condemns us. And that's when he developed his idea of an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is outside of us and God gives to us as a gift. He puts it on us like a cloak, like a garment. It's outside of us and he puts it on. And that is our righteousness. And we wear that righteousness on Judgment Day. And if we don't have that righteousness, we are naked. We have nothing for Judgment Day. This was the Reformation insight. All the other things, as important as they were, were not as important as this. Justification by alien righteousness, something outside of us, given as a gift, not because of good works or any good thing that we did. Well, I've written out this whole account on page two. You can read it at your own. We don't have time for it, but he explained how he saw it. Well, around that time, there was a building project. Now, nowadays, churches like to do building projects, don't they? They like to build family life centers. Well, they have similar, they've had similar building projects since the time of Constantine. I mean, churches have always wanted to build big buildings. Well, there was a building project going on in Rome at the time. You can still see it today. It's called St. Peter's Basilica. It's one of the most awesome displays of art in the world. And it's huge. This is the time of Michelangelo when he was painting the Sistine Chapel and making all kinds of sculpture. It was beautiful and it was very expensive. Lots of money was going to go to build this. Well, how are you going to raise money? Also, there was another issue. In Germany, around where Luther lived, Albert of Mainz had just bought himself an archbishopric. Well, that's expensive. If you want to be an archbishop, that's going to cost some big bucks. Well, he was given permission to raise money in his district by the sale of indulgences. 
Now, what are indulgences? Indulgences are pieces of paper, but they're special pieces of paper. They have the Pope's seal on it. And on the piece of paper is some writing. And the writing speaks of forgiveness of sins. If you pay money, they will give you the piece of paper. The piece of paper is permission for your sins to be forgiven by God. Well, how did it work? Well, it worked this way. This was the idea. The idea is that the church had a certain treasury of good deeds. The good deeds had been built up by Christ first and also the apostles and then the saints. And they had more good works than they needed to go to heaven. Imagine that. How many good works do you need to go to heaven? Well, that really has nothing to do with it. It has to do with how much sin you have. If you have how many sins, you will not be able to go to heaven. One. All right? One sin that's unforgiven and you don't go to heaven, you go to hell. That's God. He's perfect. They had the whole thing backwards. But they thought, well, if you do a hundred good deeds, that's enough to go to heaven. But what if you get your hundredth good deed when you're 28 and you live another 50 years? Well, you've got all this time to store up good treasure for other people. And that's what they believed. And so they had a big storeroom of good deeds up in heaven. And who got to dispense that treasury? It was the Pope. The Pope dispensed the treasury of good works. And he did it by the indulgences. That's how it works. You don't need faith. You don't need to believe anything. You just need to put the money in. If you put the money in, you get the piece of paper. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Big, yeah, it's Satan, ultimately. It's, it's a long development, and I don't know the answer. I don't. I just know that it, it, it started with purgatory, and once you get into purgatory, then there's the idea of helping your ancestors. Yeah, I remember when I was in Japan, concern for ancestors, very important. So if your father is dead or your grandfather, you could hear them crying, begging you, help me out of purgatory. It's a little bit like hell. It's terrible, only it's not permanent like hell. And so, you know, if you just give a little bit of money, you can shorten the guy's sentence. He's going to be in there a million years anyway. Maybe knock a few hundred years off. Give a few bucks. That's kind of how it worked. And it was a guilt manipulation. That's, you know, all the time they're making you feel guilty. And you can never give enough. So they uh, got this Dominican monk named Tetzel, who was a very powerful preacher. And he went around from town to town hawking, selling indulgences. So he'd put up a, a stand and he'd begin to, to, to preach. And he was good at making you feel guilty. He really was. And he had a little jingle, a little rhyme. As soon as the, co as soon as the coin into the coffer rings, from that moment, the soul from purgatory springs. Of course, it's in German. But ringing and springing, it's about the same thing. Okay? So it's a little jingle. It's kind of like advertising. They didn't have Madison Avenue. But they had a pretty, and it worked, and the money was rolling in. But there were some Germans who were very angry about this because they knew where that money was going. Some of it was going to Albert of Mainz, but a lot of it was going where? It was going to Rome. And it was their hard-earned money. And they were angry about it. And so it turns out, this is a wonderful story, one day uh, a couple of thugs who are very angry about this money go to Tetzel and ask him how much for an indulgence for a sin that hasn't been committed yet, a future sin. So that's going to cost a lot of money. Okay, how much? Well, so the price was set. The money got the indulgence with the Pope's seal. Sin is completely paid for. Then that night, they waited for Tetzel. And when Tetzel came out of the town, they mugged him and they took all his money and they gave it back to the people that, that they had just 
uh, taken it from. Tetzel was furious and had them arrested for robbery. Well, they stand up in front of the judge and they produce the indulgence. And they say, God has forgiven the sin paid for. What could the judge do? Threw him out of court. Very clever. But this is the way that the indulgence are working. But all humor aside, Luther saw it as an attack on the gospel. And it was an attack on the gospel. It was a very serious attack. And so he wrote down 95 theses, 95 points for argument. Now, if you were to read them, they wouldn't be as exciting to you as they would have been to those folks back then. They're really just points for debate. And no one ever took him up on the debate, but it began the Reformation. He did it on Halloween, October 31st, 1517. I am not in favor of churches celebrating Halloween, but we should celebrate Reformation Day. I'm not joking. I think we should have a church history day in which we celebrate great people from church history or learn something about it. October 31st, no joke. Let's have a big movement. Get rid of the fall festival. Let's have a Reformation Day. I am not joking about that. Okay. Reformation happening right here in this room. <laughs> okay. October 31st, he nails it to the Wittenberg door. Now, this wasn't shocking. The Wittenberg door was like a community bulletin board. And he put it up there for debate. Well, he also did another thing. What else did he do? He had the thing printed and it got sent around and people started reading them. Now, I put some of them in there. I don't know if you've got, I've got a longer version of my, but um, he, he writes a number of these things. Um, for example, number 62, I think I've left that one on your sheet. Um, the true treasure of the church is not the good deeds of the saints, is it? What is it? What's the true treasure of the church? It's the gospel. Now, that's revolutionary. That's where forgiveness comes from. It's not from all the good deeds stored up. It's from the gospel. And then there's questions of the laity. Now, in this way, he's a little bit like Erasmus. He said, now, Pope, I just want to protect you from shrewd questions asked by lay people, such as, well, if the Pope has power over purgatory, why doesn't he empty the place? Right? Well, good question. Why doesn't he? Or, if the Pope needs money to build St. Peter, Peter's Basilica, why doesn't he pay for it out of his own coffers? He's as rich as Crassus who is a, just paragon or example of a wealthy person. Why does he need our money? Well, that's what was in the 95 Theses. Well, it wasn't long before a firestorm hit. Now, I'm going to take a minute now and just talk about Luther's doctrine. Because you have to understand Luther's doctrine to understand the firestorm that started. Luther did not just stop with the, with the 95 Theses. He started writing and writing and writing and printing and printing and printing. So we're going to go through a list of what happened to get Luther to that point. But uh, first, you have to understand his doctrine. Three solas, this is Latin for only or alone. Sola fide means by faith alone. What's by faith alone? Well, justification is by faith alone, not by good works. All right, sola scriptura, by the Bible alone, by the scripture alone. Well, what is by the Bible alone? Authority to make spiritual statements as opposed to what? Popes and councils. Popes and councils are not authority. The Bible is authority. And if you can't prove it by the Bible, I don't want to hear it. That was Luther's attitude. Mine too. Number three, sola gratia. Sola gratia, salvation by grace alone. By grace alone. Not by good works, but just by God's free grace. These were important. There are other solas as well. Sola Christo, by, by Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Others as well. But these were the central ones. All right, he started to write. He wrote a book called Righteousness. What was this about? Well, Alien righteousness and proper righteousness. Alien righteousness is what? That It's that robe that Jesus puts on you when you believe in Him. Right? And what happens if you don't have that robe? 
Well, you won't survive Judgment Day. I believe this. If you don't have Christ's righteousness on you, you will not survive Judgment Day, but you will go to hell. And so, alien righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness given to you. I preach this when I preach to the Romans. you remember. Then there's proper righteousness. It's a righteousness that we have that comes out of the alien righteousness. We start to change. We start to do good works. That's true doctrine, isn't it? And it was right. Alien righteousness. So two kinds of righteousness, 1517. Then in 1520, he wrote an open letter to the German nobility. It's a sh- it was a shameless attempt to get German nobles and, and, and princes on his side to help him. Why? Because you needed protection back then. And so he... Um, uh, he wrote to them, but he also wrote theologically. The church should relinquish worldly wealth and concentrate on spiritual ministries. He destroyed the idea of a special class of priests. Instead, he spoke of what? Priesthood of all believers. Boy, that's important. That's a major Reformation doctrine. You know, the bottom line is that there's no special person in the church of God. Now, there's different gifts that God gives, but that's up to the Lord. But there's no class structure so that the priests are up here and we're lower. Boy, that's important. They had a whole hierarchy of holiness. And he said, we're all, I mean, the, the, the maid milking the cow, who's a Christian, is as righteous as the, and she has the right to read the scripture like anybody. Um, and that's why he translated the scripture into German. He wanted everybody to have the Bible and read it. Priest of all believers. There were three walls of Rome that had to fall. Spiritual power is above the temporal. In other words, that priests were more important than lay people. That fell. Uh, that priest alone can uh, interpret Scripture. This is what he said. Balaam's ass was wiser than the prophet himself. If then God spoke by an ass against a prophet, why should he not be able even now to speak by a righteous man against the Pope? Right? I tell you, Luther's a great writer. Uh, I wish I could give you all the different things he said. You know what he said about the sin nature? We all have sin inside us, don't we? And you try to control it, but you can't. He said, he said the sin nature is like a drunken peasant who tries to get on his donkey and ride home after a bout of drinking. And if he leans too far on one side, he falls off on that side. If he leans too far on the other side, he falls off on the other side. Well, it's quite a picture, isn't it? That's us in our sin. We try not to do this, we end up doing that. It's a great picture. Luther was a very earthy preacher and a very earthy speaker. All right, open letter to German nobility. Number three, the Pope alone can call a council again. Priesthood of all believers, anybody can call a council. If you want to get Christians together to discuss the Bible, just call them together. That was his way of thinking. This is radical stuff. This challenged everything. All right, the Babylonian captivity of the church. Well, you know the Babylonian captivity. Okay, go ahead. Changing the tape. All right. Uh, Babylonian captivity of the church, also written 15 and 20. It was a radical attack on the sacramental life of the church. Um, he, there were seven sacraments according to Roman Catholic theology. He cut them down to two. The other five were not sacraments. Okay? What was left? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's what we have. We don't call them sacraments. We call them ordinances. But, um, last rites was not a sacrament. Confirmation not a sacrament. He eliminated penance. That was huge. Sacrament of penance, that due penance, that whole thing. Ordination and marriage. Now, it's not like he was against marriage. He just didn't call it a sacrament. It wasn't a sacrament. And Luther was very strong in this. He said, I may be wrong on in indulgences, but as to the need for faith in the sacraments, I will die before I recant. Now, what is he talking about there? They believed the sacrament worked on you whether you believed it or not. In other words, all you had to do is go to Mass and take that little wafer and eat it, and it had a benefit for you. Is that true? No, it destroys faith. It means you don't need to have faith. 
He said, that is not right. You have to believe or it does nothing for you. Now, why he didn't go on and destroy infant baptism, I don't know. But uh, we're Baptists, of course. We would have been um, drowned back then. But um, at any rate. All right, and then finally, 1520, the freedom of a Christian. A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. Whoa, what does that mean? And then number two, a, Christ, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant or slave of all, subject to all. Wow, it's radical, but it's true, it's biblical. All right. Now, what is the political context? These were his writings. He was, I mean, he was just almost laying waste and getting back to biblical things in many, many ways. All right, well, let's understand the political context. Remember, we're dealing with Christendom. So you have to have political influence. There are political people involved. The video mentioned the key player, Frederick the Wise, Luther's prince, Luther's king, in effect. Frederick the Wise was an elector. Now, I don't know if you remember what I told you about the Holy Roman Empire, but the Holy Roman Empire was what became modern Germany and kind of those areas. Um, the emperor was one of the kings of Europe elected by the others to be the emperor. And there were seven electors. So Frederick the Wise was a very important man. And so people would be kind of courting him to get his vote was how it would work. He was an important guy. Now, at that point, providentially, the Holy Roman Emperor died, Maximilian. He dies. So now we've not, we need a new Holy Roman Emperor. This is a lifetime position. So it could have been that that didn't happen. But God, just the wheels turned for the Reformation. It's amazing how it worked. Emperor dies and you need a new emperor. All of a sudden, Frederick the Wise becomes very important. Why? Because the Pope does not want Charles I of Spain or Francis I of France to be the next emperor. Instead, he wants Frederick the Wise as a balance of power. Spain is getting rich with gold from the New World. It's just rolling in at this point. There are lots of big things happening. So they're getting more and more powerful. And he does not want Charles I to become the Holy Roman Emperor in addition to holding Spain. He doesn't want France to be in charge of, of the empire either because of the, uh, the Avignon papacy and all this. The, the French influence over the papacy was destructive in the 1300s. He doesn't want to go that way either. He wants Frederick to be the next emperor. Well, Frederick didn't want it, but you can see how important he is. Eventually, he refused, and he supported Charles I. Charles I felt grateful to him, and though, therefore, I think he went a little easy on Luther at the Diet of Worms. All right? It's just really amazing how this whole thing works. Luther's life was spared, I believe, because this guy owed him something, a little bit of a political IOU. Now, what were the steps to the explosion? Well, after the 95 Theses, uh, the Dominican monks started to attack him. Why? Because Tetzel was a Dominican. And Luther was an Augustinian monk following the teachings of Augustine. No big surprise. If they had stuck with Augustine, we wouldn't have this problem. But uh, at any rate, uh, early assessment by the Pope, Pope Leo, first thought, Luther's a drunken German. He'll feel better in the morning. That was the first thought. Okay. The second thought is, well, Luther's a smart guy. You know, he's got some good points. And this is really just a squabble or an argument between monks. That was the first thought, but it didn't stay there, did it? And why? Because Luther didn't keep quiet. He kept publishing and publishing it. I told you all the things he wrote in this time. He kept turning the heat up, and it just got worse and worse. Got, the breach got bigger and bigger. All right, the next thing that happened in autumn of 1518 was the Diet Augsburg. This was tremendous danger for Luther, probably more dangerous than the Diet of Worms later, because at this point he was, he was barely known. He wasn't that famous. He just was kind of like a little bit, little heretic on his way to meeting the legate from the, from the Pope, Cajetan. 
So he went there and uh, Elector Frederick the Wise promised Luther safe conduct. So I'll get you there and I'll get you back safely. The problem with that is that the exact same promise had been made to John Huss a hundred years before that. And what happened to John Huss? Well, he got burned at the stake. So it took an incredible amount of courage for Luther to go meet uh, Cardinal Cajetan, and he did. Uh, and uh, it went terribly, actually. They did not end the best of friends, I can assure you. Uh, and at the end, Luther said, not to Cajetan, but to some others, the Cardinal was no more worthy to handle the case than for a donkey to play a harp. Um, so he just said he didn't understand. There was no way he could understand my arguments. What was the point? And so Luther had an open disdain. But this is how Luther wrote. I really encourage you to read some of the things in the original um, you know, writings. Next came the Leipzig debate, July 1519. This time he had a skillful opponent, John Eck. Eck was a brilliant debater. And although Luther knew the Bible better than Eck, Eck knew canon law better, Catholic law. He also knew history real well. And looming over this whole thing was the example and the experience of John Huss. Okay? John Huss, we just mentioned a second ago, taught all the same things as Luther. And he got uh, excommunicated by a council and then burned at the stake. And so X skillfully maneuvered Luther to say that the council had made a mistake with Huss in burning him at the stake. Now, it wasn't just popes that could err. Everybody knew that because there were some real bad popes. It was councils that could err too because they made a mistake in burning Huss. Shortly thereafter, they called Luther the Saxon Huss. Now you've, in effect, got the same death sentence over your head that Huss had years ago. But that's what Eck did to him at the Leipzig debate. The next thing that happened was the papal bull, Exerge Domine. Now, a bull is a decree from the Pope. The words mean, arise, Lord, get up, Lord, and deal with this guy. The Pope uh, writes this thing and basically gives Luther 60 days to recant, to say, revoco, I changed my mind, sorry. <laughs> I, I was wrong. I didn't mean it. Please forgive me. Um, 60 days. Uh, Luther burned it. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, that's Luther, you know. This Pope comes down with all these seals and all this kind of thing. By the way, I saw a National Geographic article a number of years ago. They've got the original uh, that the Pope kept for himself, but then they mentioned the article, the one that Luther got, got burned. So nobody can have that one. It's gone. So Luther burned the bull. And in effect, he said, look, if they're going to burn my books, I'm going to burn their bulls. And that's what he did. He burned this, this document. Well, it took a long time to get there. I mean, we live in an Internet age. Okay? You know, the bull was written and it just took months and months to get him, get there. And by the time he got there, he had published those three treatises I just went through. Two kinds of righteousness, Babylonian captivity of the church, you know, all those. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. So, if it was bad when the guy wrote Exerge Domine, it was much worse by the time Luther got it. Okay? So at any rate, so he burns the... Well, excommunication, the next step is the stake back then. I mean, you know, basically, once you're excommunicated, then they'll take care of your body. They excommunicate you, and then they, they hand you over to the secular authority is how it works, because he was a heretic, according to them. All right, so he writes the three treatises, which we covered, and then comes the Diet of Worms. This does not mean that Luther ate worms, okay? Believe me. Worms was a city in Germany, or modern Germany, in the Holy Roman Emperor. And they had this diet, this council, and now Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, he's, he was Charles I of Spain, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor by, Emperor by that name. And he was a staunch Catholic. I mean, he would have burned Luther the moment he saw him if he could. That's why I tell you the politics are really important here. So he was ready to go on Luther. But Frederick the Wise was there. 
and he was protecting him. All right, right before Luther went, uh, his friends asked him to recant. They wanted him to spare his life. He said, okay, I do recant. This is my recantation. Previously, I said the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. I now say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and an apostle of the devil. That's my recantation. So that, that was Luther. He was courageous and bold, and he went there. And as he goes, by now he's pretty well known. He's actually quite famous. And the peasants cheered this guy. I mean, he was their guy. He was like a knight riding into a jousting match. And they were cheering him. But Luther, I think, was cold by the cheers because he felt like it was his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And a week later, he was going to be crucified. You know? And so, at this point, yes. Now, Zwingli came three years later. Zwingli was already coming to these conclusions, 1523, um, but it wasn't yet. Luther was just about alone. And that was the big part. This is an amazing thing. We talked about Athanasius. Remember Athanasius? The whole world is against you. That's about the way it was for Luther. And at this um, earlier, Eck had asked at the Leipzig debate, are you alone right and everyone else is wrong? Can that really be? And I'll tell you, Luther was bothered by that. And he should be. He really should be. Because frankly, if you are truly alone, you probably are a heretic. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to only communicate to one person. But he didn't only communicate to one person. It wouldn't be long before everyone was seeing the same things. It's just at that moment it seemed like he was the only one who was seeing them. He was the point guy. I've often likened Luther to the, to the edge of an axe and you have to be tough as nails. And he was. And he made some big mistakes like when he met Zwingli. That was a big problem. And, and he made an enemy of what probably could have been a friend. But that was the way he was. And you get the good with the bad with these guys from church history. And he was tough as nails and courageous but sometimes wrong. And when he was wrong, he was really wrong uh, about a lot of things. But at any rate, um, but he said, I'm not going to recant. And he said he would go there even as, if there were as many as devils as tiles on the roof. Now, does that sound like something? You guys know the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Luther wrote that. I never sing Mighty Fortress is Our God without remembering this stuff. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I mean, isn't that powerful? I mean, I almost always tear up when I sing that because I think this was, this was his life on the line. He really expected to be executed. And he's arguing over justification by faith. Would you do that? Would you lay down your life for a point of doctrine? Well, Luther was willing to do it. And then, when he was there, Eck asked him for the second time, can it be, Martin, that you alone are right and the church and all its teachers have been wrong? And then they added, for a thousand years. Luther balked at that moment. And he asked for time. See, what had happened was, when he got into Worms, they had his books stacked up like this. All stacked up. And he had hoped that he was going to go and debate Instead, they said, are those your books? Yes. Do you or do you not revoke them? Do you not recant them? He realized there's not going to be any debate. They've already made up their mind. And he wanted to go through and argue his points. He wanted to persuade. So he balked. I think it wasn't what he expected. He said, can you give me some time? So they did. They gave him overnight. Imagine what like. You know, you're pretty much alone and you're wrestling with this question. Could it be that you alone are right? Everybody else is wrong for the last thousand years. Well, in the end, God strengthened him, sustained him. The next day, Eck asked him, 
I ask you, Martin, candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors they contain? Luther answered, Since then, Your Majesty, he's referring to Charles V, and Your Lordship's desire a simple answer, I will answer without horns and without teeth. No tricks, no Erasmus here. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Isn't that great? My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do not otherwise. God help me. Amen. And that's it. And they excommunicated him. Charles V, I believe, is a favor to Frederick the Wise. Gave him a 21-day free pass to get back home. And then he was going to, I'm sure, begin a campaign to get Luther executed. Now, you have to work with the German nobles. Okay, You can't take them off. And it was interesting, the night before they issued the, the edict of his excommunication, which, by the way, is still on the books. If all of you follow Lutheran doctrine on justification, you're excommunicated too. All right, and it's still on the books. And I tell you what, if I'm going to sit across the table from any Catholic, you know how they have Protestants and Catholics together talking all the time? I'm going to ask a couple questions. Is Luther still excommunicated? And is the Council of Trent still on the books? And if it is, we have nothing to talk about. And they're not going to take that back. Never. That's just the way the church is. So Luther's still excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Funny thing is, though, I'm, I was raised Catholic. You go to a Catholic church these days and you can sing, is, God, is our God. It's right in the... That's Vatican II. We'll get to Vatican II in time. But, I mean, just there's a kind of an insanity there. But anyway, all right. He's given a 21-day pass. On his way back, on his way back, he's suddenly and, and very excitingly kidnapped by a bunch of riders, masked riders, and he disappears from sight for the next number of years. Nobody knows where he is. Well, guess who kidnapped him? Frederick the Wise. And why did Frederick kidnap him? To save his life. And he brings him up to the Wartburg, a castle, and he's locked up in the Wartburg. Basically, he called it his Patmos. He was in exile. And during that time, all he did was translate the Bible into German and write a bunch of other things too. And, and just used his time well. And at that point, you know, things started to cool off. It became clear that the emperor did not have the power to get him killed. And Luther was able to go back to Wittenberg and to begin his preaching. And he managed the Reformation simply by faithfully teaching the Word of God. This is what Luther said at the end of his life about the Reformation. He said, I did nothing. The Word did everything. I simply let the Word do its work. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's Word. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, he was not a Baptist, the Word, <laughs> the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses on it. I did nothing. The Word did everything. And folks, this is why I preach the way I do. I'm not standing up on Sundays to entertain you. I want to feed you. I want you to have the Word. And you'll see reformation happen in your life as you obey and follow the Word of God. And you won't see it happen if you don't. Make a tree good, said Jesus, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Same thing is true in terms of any changes that need to happen around here. And there are some. Luther later said to a bunch of people that were ravaging and rampaging in churches to get rid of all the idols, he said, take care of the idols in the heart and the idols on the wall will take care of themselves. And that's true. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. 
He opposed the pe Peasants' Revolt in 1524, wrote against it. He opposed radical steps of reformation, as I just quoted. He disputed with Erasmus on free will. Like a, t like a pure Augustinian, he believed in the bondage of the will, as I do as well. Free will is free as long as you're not a sinner. <laughs> but once you start sinning, guess what? You're suddenly in bondage to sin. I also believe in original sin, which is a biblical doctrine. We'll talk about that another time. And he engaged in the sacramentarian controversy with Ulrich Zwingli, who we didn't get to tonight, and it's now 7.30, so we'll just have to do it next time, along with Calvin. But it makes sense. Zwingli and Calvin were both Swiss, and uh, in, a, in one sense, their reformations go together. We'll also talk about the Anabaptists next time and some of these other things. And I'll tell you what, there's never enough time. But you got Luther at least. Any questions in negative two minutes? Doctrine of original sin is best described in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Basically, the idea is that Adam was our federal head. He was our representative at the tree. And when he sinned, the whole human race sinned. And every baby born in this world is born sinner. And this, except Jesus, of course, because of the incarnation. All right, folks, thank you very much. We'll see you in two weeks, next week, Valentine's Day. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.